I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Radical sacrifice. So I think Terry's going to start by explaining a little bit about what it is. You know, we, sacrifice doesn't get a great press as a thing. Um, and I think if you were to just be, begin by laying out the basics of what it is that can be, is radical about yes. the notion of sacrifice yes. and why people are wrong about it. Radical sacrifice sounds like a bit of an oxymoron as a contradiction in terms, of which my favourite is always business ethics. It's <laughs> <laughs> a wonderful oxymoron. Um, uh, before I respond to Daniel's question, um, let me just say, I, although I'm delighted to be here, I always have a slight shudder when I enter a bookshop these days because um, it evokes a painful memory of walking into Blackwell's bookshop some years ago in Oxford and seeing a, a stall which read um, books made simple, you know, it was kind of chemistry made simple, anthropology made simple, and standing at the stall was a friend of mine, a very eminent Oxford philosopher, leafing through the philosophy made simple. <laughs> so seizing the chance of a jape, I crept up behind him and murmured in his ear, that's a bit difficult for you, isn't it? And he swung around, and um, it wasn't my friend at all. <laughs> it was a total stranger. So I muttered an apology and scampered out of the door. Somewhere in the world, there's a man who believes that people in Oxford are so odiously elitist <laughs> that they jeer openly at total strangers <laughs> trying to improve their mind. I just hope I never run into him again. Anyway, yes, uh, sacrifice, as, as Daniel says, it's not, it's not the most uh, popular of concepts, not the most glamorous or sexy of ideas, partly Partly, I suppose, because it brings to mind uh, Islamic terrorism, yes, sacrificing yourself for a cause. Partly also, I think, because people think of self-denial as giving, giving things up. It's, um, it's a rather austere, not very pleasant concept. And of course, sacrifice can mean that. But part of what I'm doing in this, um, trying to do in this remarkably cheap and extraordinarily interesting <laughs> uh, book whose value will be greatly enhanced by a signature. From <laughs> um, part of what I'm trying to do is to go right back, is to look at, uh, sacrifice crops up in some form or other in almost every civilization. Um, I look particularly at the Hebrew scriptures, for example, um, where God, um, God's not very keen on sacrifice. Yahweh doesn't really like sacrifice that much. Famously, I think in Isaiah, he says to the Jews, who are you know, frantically trying to propitiate him by cult and ritual, who quite misunderstood what kind of God he is. He says, your, uh, I hate your burnt offerings. Your, your incense stinks in my nostrils. What are you doing about protecting the widows and the orphans, protecting the poor against the violence of the rich and so on? You'll know who I am when you do that. 
you know, to hell with uh, all of this ritual stuff. So the scripture is quite ambivalent about, about sacrifice, I think. Though I think what the book tries to say is that there is an authentic and an interesting and I think politically relevant meaning of it, which is that in some way or another, sacrifice concerns the transition, the passage of a thing, often a kind of rather reviled or inconspicuous thing, from weakness to power. But to pass from weakness to power, it's, you have to pass through death. You have to pass through a kind of self-dispossession, really. Um, the word sacrifice, of course, means to make sacred, to make something sacred. And to make something sacred in pre-modern thought is uh, the word sacred, um, <coughs> Latin sacca, is, means both blessed and cursed. It's a power which can destroy and which can also renew, which can also transform. So sacrifice is a very dicey thing. You're dealing with true power but a power which is only available through a radical self-dispossession of which the sacrifice of a beast, you know, an ox or a sheep, or whatever, is, is kind of symptomatic or kind of symbolic. So the book is really arguing this, uh, Daniel, and, and um, what happens eventually is that sacrifice rises, so to speak, is cranked up a gear from the ritual level to the moral level, so that it becomes a matter of self-giving the sort of reciprocal self-giving involved in love, for instance. That um, love is the situation in which the fulfillment of one person provides the grounds and conditions of the fulfillment of someone else. But this, that makes it sound a bit too starry-eyed because this also involves, the inner structure of this is also a kind of self Dispossession. So the argument of the book is that only through a, a kind of breaking and remaking, if you like, only through that can a, an authentic life be lived. And that this is this runs clean contrary, I think, to the standard, the sovereign liberal wisdom, you know, which sees the self as in a kind of continuity, developing itself without any radical breaks or hitches or whatever. So. There's also the aspect of giving that doesn't involve dispossession and the, the, the gifts that, I mean, you also you move on to discussing types of exchange yeah. and the ideas of reciprocity, people who have thought about that. I remember you, at one point you, you point out that various people, you wouldn't want to spend Christmas at Jacques Derrida's That's house. Right, for yeah. instance. Right. Um, yes. Could you explain why? Yes, because yeah. he says that gi giving uh, a, fam a favourite Derrida word, giving is impossible. He says it's impossible because it puts inevitably puts in puts you into debt, puts the re receiver into a kind of debt. So there's a kind of endless, you know. Giving. So I just say, you know, it's good job that one doesn't spend Christmas there. There is, he, on the other hand, I think Derrida is right to see that there's. Um, Something in the, in the so-called New Testament, which is a bit of an anti-Semitic phrase perhaps, but anyway, the New Testament, which is opposed to calculation and exchange. Yes, uh, there's a sort of um, recklessness or lavishness, a kind of over-the-topness about the ethics of the New Testament. You know, give more than you receive, give away your cloak as well as your coat, walk two miles around, and so on. Um, and that is all, that sort of over-the-topness is partly eschatological. That's to say, it's partly, it's partly because the end is nigh. Yes, as no doubt the Gospel writers believed that the end was imminent. And that throws into disarray your sort of calculus and accountancy and exchange value and so on. What, what's, however, interesting about, I talk also about the martyr, there's a chapter on martyrdom. The martyr gives um, his or her body or life as a gift to others in defense, for example, of a principle or a cause without which others can't flourish properly, yes? So that's a form of self-giving, it's a radical form of self-giving. And the point about, one of the points about martyrdom 
And one of the ways it differs from suicide, um, or suicide bombing, for instance, is that to be a martyr, you have to love the world. You have to uh, think your life is precious. You're giving up something which you value for something even more valuable. It wouldn't work if you didn't do that. Yeah. So, so the idea of sacrifice, the idea of self-giving, however negative it might sound to some people, actually implies a sort of value. You know, it's not a virtue to give up drinking bleach for Lent, you know. (laughs) Drinking drinking whiskey is a different matter altogether, you know. To to drink only one bottle a day rather than three, you know, that's mortification. Martyrdom in that sense um, indirectly celebrates or affirms the life that it's having to reject. And, you know, would that nobody needed to be a martyr? I mean, martyrdom is tragic partly because it shouldn't be necessary. You shouldn't have to have somebody who... The the word martyr literally in Greek means uh, bearing witness to, testifying. Um, You shouldn't need that uh, if you weren't in a corrupt and oppressive condition. Martyrdom and its closeness to suicide also brings up another another large idea you discuss. uh, Death comes in here. And one question I wanted to ask you about that was the, the various other people who you startlingly show are very wrong about things particularly to do with the notion uh, and I learned what it is for the first time the, the difference between eternity and uh, crucial yes yes, yes. Uh, Nagel's wrong, Nagel's um, wrong. Yes. yes Bernard Williams wrong. that's right yes. that's right very, very does uh, everyone know typical confusion of uh, <laughs> eternity and perpetuity as I say, people who think that eternity goes on and on and on, you know, like... Saying, it gets very boring. Boring, or, or indeed uh, burning. You can burn, you know, for all eternity, in, in, according to some accounts. Whereas, of course, the word eternity means literally out of time. Yes, you know, you're not, you can't... There's no time to get bored in eternity because there's no time in eternity. Um, people mistake eternity for a kind of, yes, an on and on, what Hegel would call a bad infinity. Death is uh, becoming very central to my thinking, Daniel. As as just looking at me, you can obviously see why, you know. Um, Kind of fire insurance, really, you know. In fact, I've just finished a book on death um, for Yale, which um, I want them, and I wondered whether they should bring it out posthumously um, (laughs) with a note saying, um, the author rejects the charge that his recent death was a publicity stunt <laughs> to promote this book. And I've insisted they do this, though they're deeply reluctant you know, mm-hmm. to have any such facetiousness. About yes, there's a lot. There is, um, again, um, there's, a, there's a Christian tradition in which um, it's what you make of your death which matters. Death is, of course, biologically inevitable, but the way you relate to it is, is, is not. I mean, varies. is cultural or moral or historical. And the martyr is somebody who embraces their death without thinking that death is a great thing. Yes. There is a kind of um, what Freud calls Thanatos or the death drive, which is a matter of being erotically in love with death. There are characters in Shakespeare, for example, who exemplify this. But there's also that ambivalent, I think, situation in which you um, see death as terrible. What on earth have we done to deserve it? And yet you embrace it even so. So you don't, you don't um, acclaim death and you don't try to suppress it, but you try to, um, as it were, appropriate it in some way, make something of it. You, what, the, what you don't do, I think, is see, see death as a springboard to somewhere else, to eternity or paradise. Put it this way, if, if Jesus had said to himself on the cross, well, you know, only, only six hours up here, then three days in the tomb, you know, then off to eternity, well, you know, I'm up for that, why not? You know? Then I think according to Christian faith, he would never have been raised from the dead. You have to live your death to the end. So that death is the real, is the Medusa's head, as it were, that you have to stare in the eyes if you are to get beyond it. 
And that, although maybe this is moving on too fast, Daniel, but um, th that in my own thought connect, connects with tragedy. Tragedy involves, think of Lear, think of Oedipus, that encounter with the real, with a large Lacanian R, yes. It involves being, being hacked down to almost nothing because that's the only condition in which you might move beyond it, but no guarantees. If you die or are hacked down or are dispossessed with the ace of regeneration up your sleeve, then it's not really going to work. Tragedy it doesn't necessarily mean things ending badly. Quite a lot of stage tragedies don't end badly. I mean, the, the Oresteia, the great, you know, one of our greatest early tragedies, doesn't end badly. Oedipus at Colonus or the Medea don't end badly. It means that you had to get anywhere, you have to be hauled through hell. And there are no guarantees that you will come out somewhere on the other side. But it's a, it's a realistic assessment that our situation is so warped that only by virtue of um, undergoing that kind of deathly self-dispossession um, might that not be quite the last word? Might, might, there might be something beyond that. Perhaps you could talk more about that state just short of death, um, but totally self-dispossessed. Another idea you talk about is the Muslim, that Yes. And quite a lot hangs on that. Yes, that kind of, that's a concept from Giorgio uh, Agamben, who, and it's really the concentration camp victim who is, in a sense, now just poised between life and death, who's no longer really alive in a full sense, who's living, who, an image of living death, basically. One thing that always reminds me of, actually, Daniel, is, um, is, is, Be is Beckett. I mean, Beckett is the great dramatist of being hacked down to almost nothing, uh, and yet something survives. For there to be writing, there has to be some kind of subject still around. But Beckett's, Beckett's characters are, uh, I mean, in other words, the whole idea of human agency, as with the Muslim man, has collapsed. The whole, the modern idea, at least from Kant, of the self as defined as a self-determining agent is no longer possible. I mean, uh, Vladimir and Estragon can't even hang themselves. They don't even have enough agency to do themselves in. So I think some people might see that, as it were, as post-tragic in the sense that they don't even... Tragedy is a slippery concept because it it's, has a certain aura about it, doesn't it? It's often thought to be the highest form of the arts. And therefore to say that something tragic is tragic is not the same as saying it's miserable. Whereas Beckett is very miserable and um, there may be a kind of post-tragic element about this. I've been thinking about tragedy for 50 years, ever since I sat to the tragedy paper in the Cambridge English Tripos. Um, and I remember walking, you know, where you have questions like, you know, Arthur Miller is a fine craftsman, but his work doesn't quite reach the level of tragedy. And I remember walking out of it with uh, my friend um, Jan, well, she's now called Jan Marsh, the great pre-Raphaelite scholar, who remarked to me that uh, the trouble was that the examiners seemed to think tragedy was a good thing. Mm. <laughs> um, well, it is in this sense, isn't it, that tragedy does include usually a kind of affirmation. Why? Well, even if it doesn't end well, it's because in the act of destruction, you release a sense of the value of what is being destroyed. You wouldn't call, most people wouldn't call the um, destruction of a flea tragic. You know, some people might, most people wouldn't. Um, so that tragedy is one of those forms on the knife edge between a, a deathly sense of negativity and in the very, at the very heart of that, some tentative movement of affirmation, which once again is very, has to be very open-ended. I mean, Shakespeare's tragedies don't literally end badly, mostly, in that, of course, you know, somebody comes stalking on stage as a harbinger of a new kind of era, you know. Um, there's, there's, there are different kinds of living death. The Muslim man and Beckettian characters are in some kind of limbo between life and death, yes. 
But the, there are more, the more creative and more destructive forms of that. Um, there's the living death of which I was referring to earlier, of somebody who is able to, in some way, relate creatively to their death or make something of it, of which the martyr is the most obvious sign. Donate your death, as it were, to somebody. And then there's the much uh, less positive living death of those who can't let themselves go, who can't. This is not the case with the Muslim man, who is the ultimate victim, but those who um, feel themselves too precious to die. A very good example of that is, um, in fact, uh, is, is William Goldig's novel, Pincher Martin. Yes, which some people may know. Um, I won't give away the ending. Uh, but um, uh, I used to think that Martin was in hell. Actually, it was a big mistake. He's in purgatory. He's in purgatory, not in hell. Why? Because we don't see in the end whether this ruthless black lightning, which is the ruthless love of God, which is trying to prise his claws open to see if it can get to him and transform him. We don't see in the end whether it's successful or not. Martin is clinging on to himself for dear life. He can't die. He's unable to die. He's too precious to die, he thinks. This remorseless black lightning is trying, as it were, to destroy him so as to renew him. That's a kind of living death. But um, if, if that lightning, um, if Martin can't respond somehow to the black lightning, then it will simply annihilate him. And that, the good news is, that's hell. In other words, you're not going to fry for all eternity. You're just going to be annihilated. It's far preferable, you know. <laughs> I wanted next to ask a little bit about how some of these figures function in a in a society, and there's the next the next figure that struck me very much was the the figure of the scapegoat, the yeah. pharmacos. Yes. And I wonder if you could expand yes. a little. Yeah. On the that. final chapter of the book is um, well, it's actually called Kings and Beggars, but it's about the it's about the tra the ancient tradition of the, of the scapegoat, which you find in ancient society. You also find in the Hebrew Scriptures, you find it in the New Testament because Jesus is in a sense portrayed as a scapegoat, made sin. The scapegoat is innocent in itself, but it, it, it acts as a kind of focus of the uh, flaws and, and defects and contradictions and conflicts of the situation it's in. So that by being thrust into the desert, which is what originally happened to the scapegoat, um, the society ritually purges itself of its crimes. But that in Freudian terms can very much be a repression or displacement of one's sins or crimes. Yes. The difficulty is to actually accept this almost inhuman creature uh, who is always on the threshold of society, this liminal condition, and, to see, and for society to see in it see in it something of its own lack, something of its own deficiency. And if it can do that, then in a sense a certain redemption can follow. Instead of denying and thrusting out the pharmacos, it can actually try to look at it in the eyes. A great moment in tragedy, and that of course is, is, um, is Oedipus at Colonus, where Oedipus, the blind, broken beggar, um, the incestuous one, ex-king, king become beggar, very common movement in tragedy, is accepted into the city by Theseus, by the king. And that is an enormously um, dangerous thing to do because Oedipus is, is sacer, he is blessed and cursed. That which is utterly destitute is in a sense cursed, but it's also blessed because if you can fall no further, and this again is a theme in Lear and in much tragedy. If you can fall no further, if nothing worse can happen to you, you accrue a strange kind of power. Yes? And by accepting this power, Theseus makes Oedipus the, the, the guardian, the tutelary god, as it were, of the city. But this power can also be, be, uh, be very destructive. Uh, when St. Paul said that Je says Jesus isn't, wasn't sinful, but he was made sin, for our sake. He's talking about the scapegoat. He's using the language of the scapegoat. Um, and the book ends by the, um, 
claim that um, where you find this most interestingly in the modern period is actually in the writings of Marx. Not that Marx, I think, talks directly about the scapegoat, but he talks about the proletariat. When he's talking about the proletariat, he talks about it as being a complete loss of humanity uh, in the name of a complete gain of humanity. That sacrificial language, that movement through loss as the condition of achievement, just as in Beckett, you have to have a compact with failure. Yes. Um, any achievement, any attainment, has to be based on a compact with failure. That's a very Christian idea, but it's also very Irish. I hmm. you know, come from Ireland myself, and uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're great ones for failure. You know, the Irish hate success, <laughs> um, as a lot of small societies do, because they think people are getting above themselves. But um, th th there is... Um, Marx, in a sense, it, Marx, of course, is a kind of secular version of the Hebrew prophet. When his wife was once on her way out to um, one of these things they called in Victorian society an, an ethical church, a sort of secular version of Christianity, he said, you'd, he grumbled, you'd be far better off reading the Hebrew scriptures. Yes. He's a prophet not because he peers into the future. Marx notoriously has almost nothing to say about what communism would look like because the Jews are forbidden to portray the future um, because it's a form of idolatry. Yes. Anyway, any, any language you use to portray the future is bound to be part of the language of the present. Yes, it's projecting from the present. Uh, just as you can't make an image of God because the only image of God is human beings, is flesh and blood, so you can't make an image of, of the future in, in the Hebrew scriptures. So Marx um, isn't a utopianist at all. Indeed, he began his career in contention with utopia or utopian thought. Um, he's not in the least interested in a perfect society or anything of the kind. Um, but he's a prophet um, in the authentic sense, I think, in the original Hebrew Judaic sense. Not that you peer into the future, not that you're clairvoyant. That's not really what the prophet does, mostly. The prophet says, unless you change your ways in the present, there isn't going to be a future, or it's going to be pretty unpleasant if, if, if there is. Unless justice is, you know, rolls down like water, as Isaiah says, then um, you can forget about the future. And I think that's, that's Marx is squarely in that sort of tradition. It uh, leaves me wondering a little bit about this, if, if, if we're to take it as a, an analogy or as a, as a simple fact, that the, the scapegoat um, and its application to, to the pro, proletariat, there, there are also, there are other words you use there, monster is one, yeah. dirt is another. Yeah. If it's supposed to be somehow redemptive yes. for a society, what is it that, with, with the monstrosity and the dirt that we're yes. supposed to be yes. um, looking for? Just a word first, Daniel, about Marx and the proletariat. Proletariat for Marx, of course, means basically blue-collar, industrial, productive workers. But Marx never thought that they were synonymous with the working class. Marx realized that, however, I mean, although they formed a large section of Victorian society, the working class for Marx uh, was a much broader concept, and he knew very well that most working people in Victorian England were not industrial productive workers, they were domestic servants. And of those, a huge majority were women. So when Marx talks about the working class as a general, a broad category, he's actually talking mainly about women. He's talking about those who sold their labor in domestic situations. Um, the there is a lot in the book about the monster. The monster, again, it, I mean, Oedipus, Oedipus is a kind of monster uh, because he, in some sense, as a scapegoat, is loaded with the crimes of the society mm. and is terrible to look upon. Um, the monster is like the Sphinx, for example, uh, is traditionally a kind of a, a creature made up of different bits and pieces. Just as the scapegoat takes on different people's sins and crimes, so a monster like the Sphinx is, um, is unclean, partly because it, it, it defies a single identity. 
so that again, there is a kind of sacredness in the sense of both a blessing and a curse about monstrosity. It, 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 it uh, palpably, I mean, dramatically exemplifies the crimes of society. It's stained, besmirched by all this. And yet it has, like Oedipus at Colonus, a peculiarly, a potentially creative power uh, for transformation. It's again a liminal creature. It lurks around the edges of society. Uh, it's very hard to categorize it. One question that I really had, you, you, you start at the beginning of book, the book, um, to, to you, you, you say that there are, these are, there are themes that have started to interest you recently and, and they sound gloomy, but I think as everyone can see, they're, they're not, the book's full of jokes, but what, have you, have you identified in, in yourself what it is that's, that's, that's brought you to, yeah. to, to death as the next yeah, book yeah, and yeah. tragedy and, uh, yeah. Yes, it what is. is it? it has been adding up, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. Been, it has. Been... This, I, I say, or, or I think maybe the publishers say about this book that um, it distills. Uh, sorry, this sounds a bit pompous, but distills the essence of my later thought. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, but actually, that's true. It does. Um, I, that's not. I didn't set out to do that. In fact, I never ever set out to write a book on a subject. I, I have no memory, no memory uh, of you know, how I came to be writing a book on sacrifice or ideology or postmodernism or um, absolutely never a clear-cut moment where I say right out to, I just find myself in the process of writing about, and can very rarely understand, even in retrospect, understand why um, I write about this. Um, yes, there is, um, there's a kind of cluster of themes which, which I've talked about tonight, I mean, of sacrifice and death and transformation and dispossession and revolution and so on, which have increasingly but unconsciously, I think, come together in my thought. And, you know, they're not exactly a laugh a moment, you know. Uh, however, I say that because my next book with Yale is simply called Humor. Yes, humor. Um, I don't know whether you know that the humor in the States in particular is an enormous industry. I don't mean people being funny, I mean people analyzing why things are funny, yes. Um, and this book is a, well, it's a, it's a kind of excuse to try and tell some good jokes, among other things. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but it, is, it is really an attempt to say, you know, to ask why we laugh. And so, um, so there's a little... It's not all gloom. There's a little yeah. comic lightning here, uh, relieving of, of, yes, yes. Although I'm afraid the book after that, <laughs> is another book on tragedy, um, which keeps, keeps coming back. But of course, as I've just... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Said, tragedy isn't all gloom either. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, thank you very much. I think we should open it up to questions. I have to confess that I took the same tragedy paper as you and Jan Marsh did, (laughs) and then went on to study medicine and became a GP. And uh, it was an old fashioned sort of practice 365 days a year, night, night duty, and so on. And we went into it, the people who joined the practice, 
committed to the service of others. And it was a, um, a gratifying experience to have that life. But the net result was quite a large proportion of the people I knew got burnt out. So my, my question is, sacrifice is, is often not redemptive, yeah. it's destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you can go through you know, right. service in the war to save the country and the terrible suffering that people had afterwards for yeah. years and years who survived the war. Yeah. I wonder what you... Yes, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. As, um, as an intellectual, I'm not used to talking to people who do something useful in life. So, <laughs> so I, I feel very kind of... I started off doing the same. You started off the same, yes. But you know, I just write about helping people and you actually do it. Um, yes, oh no, that's partly what I mean by saying there are no guarantees. You know, there are no guarantees where you will come out, as it were, on the other side of this process. Um, as far as um, healing goes, um, one feature of the New Testament I think that people don't notice enough, that I think I talk about in this book, is that um, this absurd idea that Christianity um, puts value upon suffering, which so many people have, Nietzsche above all, Nietzsche one of the most magnificent scourges of Christianity in the whole of the modern period. Yes. Um, absolutely false. I mean, what Jesus is normally found doing in the New Testament, if you open it at random, is trying to heal, is healing somebody, and he never once advises somebody to reconcile themselves to their suffering. He never once says it's okay to be blind, it's as good as being, you know, whatever. On the contrary, he tends to, he seems to see it as the work of Satan, um, which is a, was, was indeed a, a received myth in his time, that suffering was uh, the work of Satan, because in the sense that um, there's something awry, suffering is, is the human body gone awry. It's not how it was meant to be. Suffering, very uh, the healing of suffering, I think Jesus very much sees as part of his redemptive project, you know, to, it's a very, it's a very down-to-earth bodily kind of thing, basically, yeah. I wanted to ask about Abraham. A sacrifice when you don't sacrifice yourself, and maybe Kierkegaard as well, if you're in trembling. Yes. Sacrificing yourself and other people simultaneously is what the suicide bomber does. And that's the difference between the martyr and the suicide bomber. Whether... Um, Abraham was what, sorry? Yes, except for, except for the small detail that he doesn't, which, which actually Jacques Derrida forgets when he writes about. He writes as though Abraham does in fact sacrifice Isaac. Um, it's, a, it's a test of faith, isn't it? Um, uh, and God stays his hand and all that. Um, but there is, um, there is that key difference, isn't there, between killing yourself and taking others with you. Killing yourself perhaps in order to do that, and the martyr who, who dies in some sense to preserve life or, or enrich life in some way. That's a, that's a typically sacrificial movement, that out of death comes life. And that's, sorry, this is, not, this is a bit now off the point that you're making, but that's a very um, unmodern insight. Um, you know, for most of history, societies, pre-modern, tribal, Societies have always believed that somehow there's death, uh, an acknowledgement of death in some ritual kind of way is the condition for living well. Modernity tends to repress death. It can't do anything with it. If you're seized by the ideology of progress, then it's hard to fit death in at all. It's embarrassing and it's certainly not definitive as it is for some pre-modern thought of what life is actually about, except in this sense. And part of that repression of death in modernity is also a repression of the origins of civilizations. Because, of course, the fact is that sacrifice of some kind lies at the root of most civilization. It's the original sin, so to speak, in the sense of most civilizations have been built on Repression, or even extermination, genocide, exploitation, 
slavery, and so on. And that dark stain continues to, uh, to blight civilization. So that as Walter Benjamin famously says, you know, barbarism and civilization are sides of the same coin. He's not saying there isn't, that civilization is not important and genuine, of course he is. But you have, uh, and Nietzsche too says we have to, he said, how much blood and baseness lies at the root of all good things. That is a sacrificial insight, that you have to give something up in order to gain, and that's both true in terms of civilization, which is generally built upon a lot of wretchedness and misery, which isn't just at the origin, but which actually carries on. And it's also true, of course, psychoanalytically, because for Freud, we have to give up the jouissance of um, the bliss of our relation to the maternal body. We have to give it up in order to enter into autonomous subjectivity ourselves, so that at the root of human subjectivity lies a wound or a trauma or a defect, call it a kind of original sin, which again, as with civilization, continues to blight and shape our lives in unconscious ways. Just as there's a personal unconscious, so there is, as it were, a political unconscious. Um, and, and you have to keep thrusting the origins back into it, but they have a nasty habit of, as it were, returning. Thinking about this concept of rag- radical sacrifice, um, I, w- I found myself thinking about Brecht's great poem, For Those Born Later, and uh, the, where the stage is the idea that you would have to give up in the present something for political gain in the future. Yeah. And I'm sure you know that, that poem probably very well, and it, it talks about uh, anger against injustice, making the voice hoarse, right. and so on. And the sense that the human being... Uh, funnily enough, there's been a lot of talk about death here, but he's not really talking about suicide or, or death in that sense, but rather giving of your life for struggle in the present, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a different kind of sacrifice, which he uh, would, would sort of demean the people of the present, but they would have to be redeemed in the eyes of the future, those on the other side of the cataclysm, so to speak. And I wonder if Brecht in that way, although he's not, not a tragic writer normally, but no. in that particular vision, he, do you think he offers yeah, there a vision yeah. of a, a radical sacrifice? That's a very good, a very good point. Um, I think I quote the poem, I think, yeah. in the book. You do, you do. do I? Yeah. <laughs> The author is dead. The author can't remember what he's written. And you're right, of course, Brecht in general is a very anti-tragic writer. He's unusual in that sense among modernists because modernism <coughs> is very much a tragic. There are a lot of tragic modernist writers. Brecht thinks tragedy is a political cop-out. Brecht thinks that, well, what it was is he says, that man's sufferings appall me because they are unnecessary. You know? So Brecht thinks change society and you will get rid of tragedy. But, but you're right, not in that, not in uh, the, to those born in after years in that poem. Um, I suppose what he's saying, isn't it, is that the revolutionary, the person who tries to create a just society is the last person who is an image of it. If you want to have an image of a just society, and there's always a question of why you need that, but anyway, you don't look at the people who spend all their lives either fighting in the jungles or having a boring committee meeting one, one uh, evening after the other. Uh, what was it? Oscar Wilde says, politics takes up too many evenings. They are not the images of what they set out to create. On the contrary, they must have a kind of uh, militancy and austerity, which is not uh, the way to characterize it. In the book, I make the parallel between that and the monastic life. Again, which many people mistake for a sort of austerity as an end in itself. Not at all. I mean, monks and nuns, the, the book is dedicated to a convent of nuns who I was once connected with as a, when I was a, a child as an altar server. Um, monks and nuns uh, give up their sacrificial because partly they give up what they regard as valuable. It's not that they're, as it were, celibacy is not opposed to sexuality. It's, it's giving up something you regard as precious, as the revolutionary perhaps has to, in the name of something even more precious. So that you are a kind, it's a kind of negative sign of or testimony to the future. 
um, uh, that is what St. Paul calls being a eunuch for the kingdom. I just wondered in, in what ways is your thinking similar or different to um, Zizek's The Act, from what I understand of that, I just remember that kind of rings a bell from what you're saying. And um, if I'm saying your name right, I hope I am, Simone Way's depersonalization, like those two things seem to be... Did you say, sorry, the act? The act. Act, right. Zizek's idea of the act. Yeah, yeah. of, yeah. of <coughs> needing to yeah. do something in order to ah, yes. rebirth yeah. herself. Yeah. Who is this uh, Zizek, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually just come back from Slovenia, where Zizek lives, of course, in Ljubljana. And uh, they said that... Um, I was going to be interviewed the next morning on television by a woman who was Zizek's wife. And I knew that Chavoy had married a Korean woman not long ago. So I said, oh, she's Korean. Oh, no, no, that was the previous wife. <laughs> <laughs> I can't really keep up with him. This one is Slovenian. The concept of the act in Zizek is, is really taken from, from uh, Badiou, from Alain Badiou, or the event, as it were. Yes, the difference between a kind of action which... Um, makes sense within the given coordinates of our world and a kind of action which somehow challenges the coordinates themselves and therefore brings to birth something which couldn't simply be predicted by them, be read off from them, as it were. And um, I suppose that's Badiou's idea of the, of the event. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's I think an illuminating but rather dangerous concept because it's very close to the traditional French notion of the agratie, that's to say a, 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 an act which, has no, which is baseless, which has no foundation. One example of which is in a novel by André Gide, the, the protagonist throws somebody out of a railway carriage just for the hell of it, you know, just to show that he has no motivation. But actually that's his motivation, so you can't really do that. There, there's something slightly arbitrary about it, in other words, the problem is, isn't it, that action, like anything else, has to be rationally based. I mean, without reason we perish. But reason doesn't go all the way down with human beings. That's the hard balance, I think, to keep. That um, if you have love or faith or hope, it only means something if you can give certain kinds of reasons for it, if you can reason about it, you know. But in the end... In the end, those things are not exhausted by reason, I think. And there's a difference between that, which is fine, and a, kind, a certain kind of irrationalism, which um, acts in a random and arbitrary way, yeah, which can be dangerous. Do you mind if I lower the tone? Oh, please do, yes. Good. We're talking about the way that art echoes life, life echoes art. We're talking about a kind of essential humanism throughout time, throughout society, throughout literature, throughout culture. So on that note, I would like to ask you about the mainstream media, the way that we have narratives today, the, the almost, you could describe it as the stories of the 21st century and the things that we do to people within celebrity culture. So I effectively would like to ask you about Ant and Deck. And I would like to ask you, how would we characterise this process that's going on in the mainstream media at the moment? I'm no expert, before anyone judges me too harshly. How do we rationalise, with regard to your work, this idea of sacrificing others, perhaps, or making people monsters, making people martyrs, changing the narrative, if that makes sense, within the public mind? Yeah. I'm waffling, I'm sorry. No, no I don't. I don't know who Zizek is, but I know who Anton Deck is. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I know who Ant is now. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have a great deal to say about the media. You know, they're after my time, really. You know. um, you're speaking here to somebody who's never sent an email in his life. In my own formative political years, let's say the 60s and early 70s, the media were tremendously important because... Um, they were, it was as though they were a point of intersection between um, basically on the one hand making profit and on the other hand the quality of life and experience. There's a dramatic sort of conjuncture, if you like, in the media, um, not just in the visual media, between those two things. So that um, if we're talking um, in, in cultural terms about 
culture is partly concerning the quality and texture of life, which is very um, elusive. Um, what we see in, in the media very often is the way that's warped and shaped by very hard-headed infrastructural profit you know, motives and drives and so on. Um, it's almost as though the media are a kind of phenomenology of all that. At the same time, like any form of technology, almost any form of technology can be used can't it, for both, both oppressive and emancipatory reasons. When A good example of that is that when, when the Nazis came to power in Germany, Goebbels offered a job to the great Marxist uh, theatre director, Erwin Piscato, who was, who was Brecht's great mentor, because he, Goebbels saw perfectly well that all of these technologies that was being used for left-wing purposes could equally be refunctioned for right-wing ones. So it's not as though necessarily the technology is neutral, but it can go in different political directions. Um, what then is distinctive about, I mean, what's happened since I was you know, interested in the media in that earlier period and now, is, as it were, the concept of virtual, the virtualization of reality, or the fictionalization of reality. The part of postmodernism is to blur that traditional distinction. Postmodernism doesn't, in general, like distinctions. It doesn't like antitheses or polarities. I think it's actually wrong about that. I mean, some distinctions are, 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 are noxious, but some, some have to be made. You know, some have to be made. You sometimes have to take a stand on one side of the polarity rather than another. But it's, that's, that goes against a, sen a postmodern sensibility, I think, which is, um, well, let's say, which you, you want a certain diversity. Postmodernism is nervous of rigid oppositions, whereas I'm not. I think there are some rigid op oppositions that must be retained between the exploiters and the exploited, for example. At the same time, and partly because, of, and in the same way, postmodernism is very, very nervous about the concept of conviction. I'm sorry I've moved so far from your media to... Come back into that binary of and dad. Okay, yeah. Two things that must not coexist. It doesn't like conviction. Uh, why? Because uh, it quite wrongly thinks that, I, that, in my view, that conviction is always incipiently dogmatic. Yes. That to have, that, that, that people who are gripped by convictions are covertly fanatics. Boris Johnson was once asked if he had any convictions, and he said he thought he'd picked up a few for speeding a few years before. <laughs> and, and forgive me if you've heard me say this before or read this, but, but this is the reason why so many young people today say like every three seconds, you know? So like, to say it's nine o'clock is unpleasantly dogmatic and authoritarian. <laughs> to say you know, it's like nine o'clock is you know, suitably provisional, open-ended, subject to revision, tentative, you know, open to argument and so on. Whereas, you know, I, I, not, all, not all convictions clearly are, are dogmatic. Some are, but some are not. Part of the problem there, and okay, now I'm moving even further away from what you're saying, is that um, it seems to me, that the, uh, and again, forgive me if you've heard me say this before, that the world is increasingly divided down the middle between people who believe too much and people who believe too little. People who believe too much, fundamentalists. Not just, you know, whether Taliban or Texan. Yes, all kinds of fundamentalists. Who believe too much. Uh, indeed, for whom belief is not a matter of faith, but really a, a kind of knowledge. The word Scientology is particularly stupid because it means the knowledge of knowledge, actually, if you think about its etymology. Um, and then there are people who believe too little, you know, people who don't really have any convictions. Justin Bieber, for example. I mention that just to show you that I'm not just a, a stuffy egghead, but, you know, I'm, I'm a human being, just like you, you know. In fact, I don't let this go beyond these walls, for goodness sake, but um, I once slept in Madonna's bed. <laughs> she wasn't there herself. But, um, anyway, uh, so, and the point is that both of these camps sort of bounce off each other, I think, that you, know, that you get a kind of trendy 
Western agnosticism, where you don't really need convictions, because in a sense, you know, this, the extraordinary thing about liberal bourgeois society is that within certain limits, legal limits, you can believe what you like. And that is, that is historically quite unique, isn't it? Imagine what an ancient philosopher or a medieval theologian would have thought about that. You know, as long as you get out of bed and pay your taxes and don't beat up too many policemen and so on, you can believe what you like. And that, of course, is on the one hand an enormous gain. It, and, and, and nobody has more uh, praise for the great middle-class liberal tradition than Karl Marx. The Communist Manifesto is a hymn of praise to the revolutionary middle class. But at the same time, it means you're very vulnerable if you confront an enemy who has no doubt about what he believes, you know, a fundamentalist kind of enemy. So we are now trapped, as it were, in this, in this deadlocked situation between too much and too little belief. This might be completely the wrong forum to ask this, but I'm just dying to know what you think about Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> oh, no, it's not the wrong forum at all, no. I've, uh, I've spent my life just not, just not meeting him. We always seem to speak, be speaking at the same events, but he's always just gone, or I've always just gone. So I have great admiration for Jeremy Corbyn. And I think it's, um, I think it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? that the British people um, came within a whisker of electing as their leader a man whose beliefs are deeply indebted to Marxism. I don't know whether he's a card-carrying Marxist. I don't care whether he is or not, but who is certainly, um, certainly a socialist. Um, and, and, and why? Not because everybody agreed with his policies, to be sure though they agreed with some of them, but because he's very clearly that most extraordinary political creature, a man of principle, and that people r respond to that. I think I just think it, it's a it's a very strange phenomenon, really. It's, it's a, um, and I don't think you can just lump it in the same category as right-wing Trumpist populism. You know, some people that that's looking from a very long way away if you just see them as examples, different examples of the same kind of populism. You mentioned Beckett, which raises, I think, two kind of categories of experience in 20th century literature that seem to have some relation to this post-tragic condition. One is slapstick and, you know, the age of Trump and whether sacrifice is possible in the age of a, a, a Trump-like president. Um, the other is kind of abjection. I mean, there's a famously... Uh, there's a famous moment in a Borges poem in terms of the Christian story of the crucifixion where he says, uh, a fly crawls over the still flesh. What is it to me that this man has suffered when I am suffering now? So I wonder if you could speak about that, if there is any relation between sacrifice in, in this sense and comedy and slapstick in the 20th century. Well, it's not, it's not a topic I've really thought much about, but... but Ignorance has never deterred me from anything, so uh, I certainly won't allow it to now. Um, you're quite right about the farcical dimension of Beckett, to be sure. Uh, the, um, we always talk about the two characters in, or the two main characters in Winter for God are as tramps, don't we? But the text doesn't actually say they're tramps, and they could well be some kind of clowns. Or, yeah. That's uh, that again. I would I would, I would venture to say, at the risk of stereotyping, though actually. I think there's a lot to be said for stereotyping, which is a different story. Yeah. <coughs> Just as I think there's a lot to be said for essentialism. A very familiar Irish mode uh, is, is, uh, is, is, is tragic comedy, is a mixture of the high and the low. The most, I think, the most recurrent Irish uh, trope or figure in, in, in Anglo-Irish literature, I can't read Irish, is, um, is bathos. It's a swoop from the high to the low. You know, you give a grandiose speech like Pozzo tries to do and then you trip over your bowler hat or whatever it happens to be. Uh, or Stephen Dettelus and Bloom or whatever, countless examples of that. Uh, that's very much a situation in which you have a society of high learning inherited from the monastic traditions and so on in a desperately impoverished situation. You can't help but notice the incongruity of the intellect when, when there's destitution uh, around you. Um, but there is also, I think, and I, I mentioned this in the book, I think there's, a, I don't know about farce, but there's a kind of comedy, comedy noir about the crucifixion. 
Crucifixion, in one sense, just fits the paradigm of tragedy that I've been talking about. It doesn't, for a Christian, end badly because there's the resurrection, but neither is it just a springboard to that. But there is this kind of almost grotesquely, not exactly funny, but grotesque aspect, which is that um, the idea that God sends his son to redeem humanity, and uh, what do we do? We kill him. <laughs> I mean, there's just something so deeply incongruous about that that, that um, I, don't know, I don't know of any parallel in any other religious form of thought to that, um, again, as it were, the movement from the sublime to, the, if not the ridiculous, then certainly it's a very, very mundane. That's equally a Christian idea, isn't it? Uh, you know, Matthew, Matthew's Gospel sets up the second coming in all of this very traditional Hebraic imagery of clouds and triumph and all that. And what happens? Jesus says, you know, did you, did you give a cup of water to somebody who was, who was thirsty? Did you visit somebody who was all very material, all very political, all very Jewish? You know, when Jesus says that, he speaks as a Jew, you know, for whom um, salvation is not primarily a cultic affair, appeasing some alien god, you know, but is a matter of human relations, basically, so ethical matter. One last question, I think, to anyone who can raise their hand quite high. I've actually got two small questions. Uh, first one uh, is yes, another academic reference. I wonder if you have anything. Any thoughts about Jean Baudrillard in The Agony of Power? Because uh, he talks about the act of terrorism. Um, and uh, to quote it directly, he says, the death of a terrorist is not a suicide. It is an effigy of the virtual death that the system inflicts on itself. And he's talking kind of in reference to hegemony, hegemonic power. Um, I, I didn't quite... It's the, an effigy of what? Sorry, say it again. It's an effigy of the virtual death that the system inflicts on itself. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't read that book by Baudrillard, and um, I, think, I think at this point ignorance might deter me from... Uh, <laughs> In that case, I have one smaller question to, as a little light relief from all the academic. I wonder if you have, having written this book, any particularly spicy anecdote of a personal sacrifice to share with us. Any spicy anecdotes about what? Personal. A personal experience of sacrifice. Um, oh, yes. Um, well, as I said, the book is dedicated to uh, some Carmelite nuns. I, as a kid, I used to be an altar server for, in a Carmelite convent. It was very, very spooky experience because in those days the nuns were entirely enclosed they couldn't leave the enclosure and one of my jobs was the, the, uh, when, a, when a novice when a new nun was was, was, was admitted to the convent she would be, she would wear a bridal dress which would be a sign of her marriage to Christ and um, she would be brought into the so-called parlor which was a completely empty room with a grill with spikes on it, symbolic spikes, and she would be on one side of the grill, and I, my job was on the other side to bring in her parents who would not see her again, who would never see her again. And she was normally very happy, and of course the parents were extremely sad and miserable. Um, so I was, uh, that was a sacrifice on my part, but I was involved, as it were, early on in that kind of sense of sacrificial life. Uh, nowadays, the convent that I dedicate this, it's not the same convent. Nowadays, um, the, the, the cells are en suite. <laughs> so quite a lot has changed and they can go out from time to time and, you know. But um, one of my other jobs was um, they, had a, they had a very large uh, guard dog called Timothy. All convents have guard dogs for obvious reasons. Yeah, convents attract a lot of rather nutty people. I mean, not, not, not on the inside, but on the outside, or maybe on the inside as well, yeah, but certainly on the outside. And uh, my job, one of my jobs in the evening was to put Tim, there was a sort of turntable. The only connection between the, the enclosure where the nuns were and the outside where I was, was a sort of turntable in the wall. And uh, one of my jobs was to put Timothy on the turntable. So she had to go into the convent for the night 
into the enclosure for the night. And so I would, I, so that the sister sacristan would be waiting on the other side of the wall, of the turntable to receive Timothy. And uh, I would say, uh, uh, Deo Gratias, sister Deo, Deo Gratias being like, hello, you know, kind of, kind of Latin version of hello. Um, Timothy is coming in now. I was only about eight or... <laughs> and I would heave this dog. You know, this, uh, occasionally I had a fantasy of leaping onto the sound <laughs> table myself, you know, and sort of you know, giving her a coronary as she turned it <laughs> round. You know. um, she, she, she would have... Uh, if she had done that, uh, she would not have needed to lower her veil because I was pre-adolescent. Yes? If I was adolescent, or beyond, she would have had to put her veil down. Anyway, so um, Timothy would gradually disappear and I would hear this muffled barking that I assumed was the dog and not the nun, you know, on the uh, other side of the wall. And um, so, although it wasn't my own sacrifice, it was certainly, uh, I was certainly involved in all this from earlier. Maybe that's why I wrote the book, who knows? You know, who knows? Well, thank you very much indeed, and uh, thanks everybody for thank coming you. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 